The time is now. Volume 7, episode 132. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of the podcast and the vice chair of labor and employment at Cozen O'Connor. As you may know, or as you may have heard or read, NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo just issued another memorandum this past Tuesday, May 30th, 2023 to advise us on her position when it comes to non-compete agreements and the National Labor Relations Act. This comes seemingly uh, from a perfect storm. A perfect storm between, on the one hand, a very active trend, as we've been talking about, toward restricting, if not eliminating, the enforceability of non-compete agreements around the country, with, on the other hand, an incredibly active and aggressive uh, general counsel's office at the NLRB. And so, again, you just saw another example of that this week, coming off the heels from March when uh, General Counsel Abruzzo took uh, a position on severance agreement provisions. We now see this new memorandum uh, that goes on the attack against non-competes. And in fact, right up in the beginning of this latest memorandum, General uh, General Counsel Abruzzo states that, generally speaking, non-compete agreements between employers, excuse me, and employees prohibit employees from accepting certain types of jobs and operating certain types of businesses after the end of their employment. As explained below, such agreements interfere with employees' exercise of rights under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. Except in limited circumstances, I believe the proffer, maintenance, and enforcement of such agreements violate Section 8A1 of the Act. So says General Counsel Abruzzo. Uh, If you are not able to get a copy of this memorandum, and it is not very lengthy, um, from the nlrb.gov website or otherwise on your own, please feel free to email me and I'm happy to send a copy of it to you. Uh, But who better to speak about the memorandum than General Counsel Abruzzo herself? Uh, General Counsel Abruzzo, uh, you're always so gracious to come on to the podcast right in the heat of various new developments, so I really appreciate you coming back on. Of course. Uh, Short time that I do have with you, I want to focus on the context and the scope uh, of the memo that you just issued, GC23-08. Um, Coming off your recent memorandum on March 22nd, following the board's recent McLaren-McComb decision on severance agreements that you came onto this podcast and talked about as well, you now issued a new memorandum this week on non-compete agreements. 
interestingly, you told us during your last appearance on the podcast that there were other employment-related provisions beyond the severance provisions that you hope to be able to address. So the question at the moment is why non-compete agreements and why right now? Right. So, so you know, as you as you noted, I mentioned during our last talk um, that I did have issues with some other provisions, and I think specifically I mentioned that the ones that I felt might interfere with employees' exercise of their Section Seven rights included non-competes and and uh, no solicitation, no coaching agreements, as well as some broad liability releases and covenants not to sue and um, cooperation agreements that require employees to cooperate in current or future investigations involving the employer. But um, so, yeah, so this isn't new, um, but the why, the why now is frankly, because we had a case under investigation involving a non-compete agreement uh, that was overbroad. And, you know, we had an occasion to address the issue. And, and so we did. So let me go uh, to the high level first, and then uh, I'll get a little bit more into the weeds quickly with some scope questions that I have for you. Uh, but to start, what is the high level takeaway you were hoping to achieve with this latest uh, May 30th memorandum? Right. So, I mean, as you know, at the at the very heart of the act's purpose is the equalization of bargaining power between employers and employees. And in my opinion, non-compete provisions chill virtually all types of protected activity in the workplaces, um, not only of the employer, but also of competitors because it scatters former employees to the four winds, breaking social ties that are predicates for communication and solidarity uh, on which you know collective action relies. Um, it increases the economic cost to employees who are unlawfully discharged for engaging in protected activity. And, you know, it undermines employees' ability to replace lost income in the context of strikes or lockouts or, or other labor disputes. And, and in addition, particularly, it's likely to chill other important Section 7 activity, including concertedly threatening to resign, carrying out those threats and soliciting others to do the same. I mean, you know, I think we all know that um, employers often, uh, I, I would say way too often, require non-compete agreements where particularly low-wage or middle-wage workers who lack access to trade secrets, um, they still require them to, to sign non-compete agreements um, in order to either get obtain a job or retain uh, a job. Um, um, and they require them in states where non-competes are unenforceable. So it seems to me that employers, at least some employers, are imposing agreements on employees for, for unjustified or illegitimate purposes rather than based on a good faith belief in their enforceability. Um, and, and so I, 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 I drew, do believe, and the memo kind of lays this out more fully, of course, that the agreements are or can be a fundamental threat to the fulfillment of the act's purpose of restoring equality of bargaining power and instead the agreements provide employers with undue leverage to quash employee self-organization and protect a concerted activity to affect positive workplace change. It's, it's interesting to uh, be uh, one who has watched what the NLRB has been interested in over the years and particularly most recently. I, I think and I hope we are way past 
um, companies understanding that the NLRB does not just cover union facilities, that this is also non-union uh, uh, entities as well. Hopefully we're past that. But I think we are still at that point of time where the scope of the issues that you as the general counsel and the, and the board, the kinds of issues that they're taking up, probably go beyond what still some people believe or, or assumed the board uh, would be interested in. So we know that the board has addressed various employment issues outside of the union context, such as social media and employee handbooks. Many people, I think, do look at individual severance agreements and individual non-compete agreements, though, as purely private contractual matters. So uh, are these severance agreement and non-compete agreements areas in which the NLRB has historically looked to delve into? So, Mike, I mean, you know, I mean, we have the board has the agency has no independent investigatory authority. So we take cases as they come to us. We don't go looking for them. Right. Um, but. But, you know, I and the board agree, um, as it noted in the McLaren-McComb case, um, which was, you know, the last time I was on the podcast, that the rights of employees, as well as the rights of the public, can't be traded away in a manner that chills or requires forbearance from engaging in concerted activities. And that broad prescription underscores that the board acts in a public capacity to protect public rights to effectuate the public policy of the National Labor Relations Act, which is what we are congressionally mandated to do. All right. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about the intended scope of your memorandum this week. Uh, some interesting um, statements that you make in the memo. Uh, you state that non-compete provisions, in your opinion, are overbroad to the extent they deny employees, quote, the ability to quit or change jobs by cutting off their access to other employment opportunities that they are qualified for based on their experience, aptitudes, and preferences as to type and location of work, end quote. And then you list five specific activities that are chilled by non-compete agreements all of which, virtually all of which, seem to contemplate discouraging or chilling a desire to change jobs to secure improved working conditions. And I guess when we're sitting back and trying to understand the scope uh, of this memo, what if, for example, an employee who received monetary consideration for a non-compete simply wants to quit his or her job and join a competitor for reasons having nothing to do with poor working conditions, Maybe they're now being offered more money from a competitor to effectively take business away from the former employer. Uh, is your point, are you saying that motivation, that that motivation to move would be protected by the NLRA such that an otherwise lawful non-compete agreement would be deemed illegal? So I, as to that example, I disagree with the premise that 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 person leaving has nothing to do with quote poor working conditions because I think that securing improved working conditions includes seeking and obtaining higher wages from a competitor. So I just disagree with with that it's not quote poor working conditions. Um, but what I will say is, you know, we are looking at this objectively. It's an objective standard as to whether the proffer maintenance and or enforcement of non-compete agreements fundamentally interfere with employees' exercise of their Section 7 rights. 
And one of the uh, issues coming out of the McLaren-McComb uh, decision and then your subsequent memo was whether context matters in these kinds of cases. So when we're talking about this non-compete area, does context matter? Um, in terms, I would say that uh, the language of the non-compete speaks for itself. So again, and we're going to look at this objectively, uh, and we're going to look at whether or not the, the non-compete itself is interfering with employees' exercise of their Section 7 rights. So the motivation in the example that I just gave, the motivation, um, and I understand the broad view of um, to secure improved working conditions, but somebody going to maybe even harm the former employer, maybe they're getting offered the exact same salary, so it wouldn't be higher wages, but someone going to move to a competitor to, you know, to harm for whatever reason, their former employers is, is that a situation where, where it still may be illegal because context might not matter? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll have to take every case as it comes. The facts are going to be different. And obviously, we'll be looking at, you know, the facts of each situation. But I would say in general, and particularly when you're dealing with low wage and middle wage workers that are um, required to sign non-competes, uh, you know, I'm going to, we're going to basically look at it again, objectively, and make a determination as to whether or not their Section 7 rights are being um, interfered with. The last example I have, um, I just wanted to test sort of the boundaries of this a little bit. You, you do mention the possibility in your memorandum of using a longevity bonus uh, as one example of ways that an employer um, can more narrowly tailor perhaps what they're looking to do. Uh, I guess thinking about, again, taking these things to, to logical conclusions, couldn't an employee be chilled from looking to work elsewhere and decide to object with others to the amount of that particular longevity bonus such that it would render that bonus illegal if we're using the same kind of objective standard that you're espousing in the memo? Or, or is that too ridiculous of an example? Well, <laughs> so what, what, what I will say there is, you know, the, the whole real opportunity to effectively band together, to effectively seek changes in their wages and benefits or to otherwise address mutual workplace concerns and working conditions without being restricted for illegitimate and or unjustified reasons. So, so in your example about longevity bonuses, I mean, workers have a real opportunity to effectively band together, to effectively seek changes in whether it be the monetary amounts or whether it be the, the, the length of their tenure, for example. And if they don't like that result, they are not limited in options, but rather they can stay, they can continue to fight, or they can leave for suitable employment elsewhere that may alleviate their concerns. But it's the restrictions that non-competes create um, or cause on the exercise of sex Section seven rights, which um, is problematic, as I spelled out in the in the memo more fully. And so, does it matter uh, if uh, the the condition or the consideration, I should say, for the non compete is the continued employment as opposed to 
something else. You know, we see non-compete provisions all the time in retention bonuses, as you said, longevity bonuses, or some additional consideration. Does that matter for the analysis or does it not matter ultimately when you're looking at Section 7 rights? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, whether or not someone gets, again, we are about ensuring that the public policy of the act is what is effectuated. And so we, as an agency, are not going to allow for, you know, quote, private contracts to get in the way of public rights. Last question I have for you. Uh, am I correct that this uh, position on non-compete agreements still would not apply to supervisors and, and high-level executives that enter into non-compete agreements with their employer? Much the same kind of question that I asked you when we were talking about the severance agreement. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that. And, and, and I believe what I said last time, which I'll say again, is, I mean, supervisors are generally, you know, frankly, um, I will just say, broadly speaking, in my opinion, there are many other ways for employers to address their concerns about um, trade secrets or some other proprietary information leaking out to competitors um, using some other mechanisms as opposed to non-compete agreements uh, for everyone. But be that as it may, I mean, as you know, um, our agency and our act only does not have jurisdiction um, uh, over supervisors, except, I mean, supervisors typically are not protected under our, our statute. It, but there is a case, as you know, Parker Rob Chevrolet, which where the act would protect a supervisor who is retaliated against because they're refusing to act on their employer's behalf and committing an unfair labor practice against their employees. So they're refusing, in other words, refusing to violate the NLRA per their employer's directives to do so. So, I mean, again, obviously we'd have to look at, the, we always look at the facts of every single case, but potentially there could be a scenario where proffering a non-compete to, to such an individual could be unlawful based on the facts of that particular case. But, um, you know, obviously we'll take it, we'll take every case as it comes. Uh, I appreciate that. I suspect we'll be hearing about uh, other um, employment contract related uh, clauses that are concerning from an NLRB uh, or an NLRA uh, standpoint in the future. Perhaps again, you know, it's what what charges are brought to us, and then we'll 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 see where we go from there. Uh, General Counsel Abruzzo, as always, really appreciate you coming on and explaining uh, some of these hot developments uh, to us. Uh, thank you so much and hope you enjoy the beginning of the summer. Thanks, Mike. You too. Take good care. As always, it is so helpful uh, to have General Counsel Abruzzo on, uh, as well as uh, so many other government officials, to talk directly to you about what their thinking is and what their initiatives uh, are when it comes to a lot of what we've been talking about uh, in the news. So here again, we uh, have been talking a lot about the FTC on the federal level and Congress on the federal level taking aim at non-compete agreements. So much of that has been on the state and local levels as well, 
trying to, again, limit the circumstances in which non-compete agreements can be enforced. And businesses should take note of what's going on. Here is another government agency, the NLRB, at least from the general counsel's office, taking aim as well on non-compete agreements. Businesses should take notice, should be keeping abreast of what's going on in this area. And as I've said in past episodes, really step back and take a look at their non-compete agreements to the extent that they are uh, used to see if they should be used in their current form or if all of this should be taken as an opportunity to revisit what the protectable interests are for the organization and how best and how most narrowly tailored we can be in trying to protect those through an agreement with employees. That's all we've got today. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.